Hello, and welcome to Practical Significance, a podcast to inspire listeners with compelling stories from statistics and data science and to propel data-driven careers forward. Here are your hosts, the ASA's Associate Executive Director, Donna Lalone, and Executive Director, Ron Wasserstein. Well, welcome, everyone. We are finding it difficult to believe that it is 2024 and we are about to begin another season of practical significance, but we couldn't be more excited about beginning the season with our guest, Brian Tarrant, to talk about real world data science, an initiative of the Royal Statistical Society or RSS, which the ASA has recently joined as a partner. We'll get to real world data science. But we actually want to start by learning a little bit more about you. So if you could share a little bit about your background and your career. And actually, personally, I want to know, what's this ombre de metal and video gamer stuff that I read about on X? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Shall I start there? I'll start (laughs) with that. I'll explain that one. There is a story behind that, but I can't remember what it is. But the basic version is I really love heavy metal music. When I was at college, so about 18, I played in a a terrible, terrible, noisy band. My friends and I were always talking about metal music. And I'm sure this is the title of a song by a heavy metal band from Brazil or something like that. I think it might be Sepultura. I can't remember. I, I was I was Googling it, couldn't find anything. But anyway, that that's kind of the origins of that. The video gamer thing is, you know, pretty self-explanatory. I like playing video games and I make it my uh, goal to the playing of video games as a 40-year-old man uh, acceptable. Uh, because, uh, you know, my dad tells me that I should have stopped years ago, but I still love them. But this is not what we're here to talk about. Right? I, I could do a whole podcast about video games. So my background is I'm a journalist. So ASA fellows and members will hopefully know me from my work on Significance magazine. So that was between 2014 and 2021. So I worked on the magazine for that time. Prior to that, I worked in the market research industry. I was editing a, I suppose it's a trade publication, if you like, for market researchers. So that's how I became interested in statistics We got to meet some statisticians as part of our reporting on on market research. And that's what led me to Significance Magazine and the RSS and the ASA. I'm not a statistician or a data scientist, but I like to think that 10 years of working with statisticians and data scientists has, has taught me a little bit about how data scientists and statisticians approach problems and think about problems. And I hope it's made me a little smarter. From reading your work, I think it has taught you a lot and we would definitely welcome you into the fold. But to get down to the business of the podcast, tell us about real world data science. What was the motivation for getting it started and where do you see it going in the future? Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, a bit of background to real world data science or what it is now. So it's a, it's an online publication, a new digital publication that we developed. The first version of it went online in October 2022. And the, the site as it is now was fully launched in, in March 2023. It's a publication that aims to speak to all data scientists, whether they are just starting out as students, whether they've been in the industry for a couple of years leading teams or teaching the next generation, whatever it might be. We really wanted to focus on, as should be evident from the name, real world applications of data science. What motivated it from the RSS side was a data science task force that the president of the RSS at the time, Sylvia Richardson, had set up. 
And that brought together people from academia and industry and the RSS uh, fellowship to think about, you know, what role should the RSS play in the data science conversation? What can the RSS as an organization contribute to and support our members that work as data scientists? And also, how can we kind of advocate for the important place and the important role that statistics plays in the data science toolkit? The group of people that I worked with from that task force were predominantly statisticians who worked in industry, in data science roles, in data science teams, in organizations. And they were, as I say, they were keen to stress that, you know, a lot of what is reported on about data science now, a lot of what you see is kind of driven by marketing hype. A company blog post, if you like, or I guess complicated sounding solutions to issues. And the goal of that is essentially to sell companies things you know it's like the whole big data hype it's about you know what can we sell you to make you feel like you're doing data science and you know our data science professionals they were saying actually no we think we really need to sort of shed some light on what data science actually looks like end-to-end what the process how it begins with a conversation with the internal client or the uh, external client whatever it might be about what is the question that you want answered what's the problem you want to solve and then the steps that you walk through that process to you come at a, an output, an outcome, some insight, advice, whatever that you can deliver to the client. I guess to demystify what data science actually is, because I think there was a sense that anyone could do data science, right? It's just about pulling packages off of GitHub and chucking some data into it. But statisticians will tell you knowing how to deal with data, knowing the right way to approach a particular problem, knowing that there isn't always in fact, very rarely a right way. It's just about a, an informed, sensible way of doing things. That's crucial. So trying to introduce some of those concepts through our case studies, through our discussions, through our explorations of, sort of key data science ideas and methodologies and techniques, you name it. So that's kind of what we're building up to. Uh, you said about where we go next. Key for us is to continue to develop the platform. And we're really delighted to have the ASA on board as a partner. I had you know, great fun working with ASA colleagues on significance for, you know, the best part of 10 years. And I think making sure that we reach a broader audience, making sure that we are speaking to the uh, international data science community is really key for us. And also having a voice in the artificial intelligence conversation. It's something that I know in the UK, as in the US, there's a lot of activity at the moment. Data statistics data science plays an obvious role in artificial intelligence because the artificial intelligence we're talking about primarily are models built on driven by data and understanding that data understanding how those models are built statisticians and data scientists have a perspective on that and how best to use those models so we really want to make sure that we're we're part of that conversation so brian let's drill down just a little bit more website i guess you developed in Quarto, maybe, is that right? And you set up to be publicly available yeah. like from the get-go. So talk a little bit about the experience of doing that and, you know, sort of what you what you did and what you took away from doing that. It was a learning experience for me. I, I gave a talk at the POSIT conference in September in Chicago, telling a bit about my journey. And there is a video online, and uh, we're going to hopefully share it on Real World Data Science soon. You know, for me, as a journalist, I had no experience really of building websites. I was involved in website projects in the sense of saying, I think it should look a bit like this. And, you know, the headline should go there and be in that point size or whatever. But actually building something, I'd never had the opportunity to do that before. And when I was doing the research around what real world data science could be, there was a kind of sense, really, that I wanted to make sure that anything that 
we built was being built for the audience of potential contributors because significance, you know, eight years on that magazine, I'd spent a lot of time annoying contributors because they deliver these lovely, well set out articles in LaTeX format. And I'd say, no, I'm sorry, work with LaTeX. We're, you know, just a Microsoft Word and an Adobe InDesign type of organization. So I thought, well, actually, there are tools. I know there are data science tools. There are tools that data scientists are using to produce really beautiful outputs, reports, books, websites, whatever. What are these tools? How do I use these tools? How can we build something from that? So I, yeah, literally someone, I think two people have mentioned to me Quarto. I hadn't ever heard of it before, but the the documentation is so easy, helps you to upskill or feel like you're upskilling really quickly. And they give you just enough to get you started and get you excited about the potential but not enough that you could do everything straight away, right? You really have to start digging into the Stack Exchange, Stack Overflow threads, putting callouts for help on GitHub pages and repos, all that sort of stuff. And the whole community, that whole open source community is just so engaged and so willing to help and share and support that it just kind of inspired me to keep going. And, and now we've got to the point where I think we've built a platform that, data scientists who use these tools should feel empowered to be able to write and contribute and understand how we're putting this together. It's not built using like publishing tools for publishing people like me. It's built using data science tools for data scientists. And we hope that that will provide an additional kind of layer of engagement for people. That is really super cool. Thanks, Brian. So how can our listeners get involved? Oh, well, there's lots of ways. So at the moment, uh, people tend to just well drop us an email and say, hey, I've got a, an article idea and we'll discuss it back and forth over email. Where we really want to get to, though, is having people use the sort of the full functionality of the site of Quarto and of the GitHub uh, infrastructure that we use. So the site is run off of a GitHub repo, off of GitHub pages. People can technically, if they want to, they can take a copy of our repository so that they'll clone the repository. They can create an article within the you know correct article directory design it put the features that they want in it and then essentially send that to us via what you know what they call on github a pull request to say basically hey i've built this thing for your site take a look what do you think and then that we can have the kind of review process back and forth via github it's all transparent it's out in the open people can see the conversations others can contribute you know, if they feel they've got something to add, that's where we really like to get to. So if people are listening and, and they think, you know, I've, I've worked on data science projects. I really want to help people to understand what data science looks like in a real world context, trying to solve real world problems. Then please do go to the, the GitHub repository, clone it, run the site on your machine locally, build what you want, build what you think is cool, what people would want to read and share. And then, yeah, let us know about it and do it that way. I think that would be taking full advantage of what we've built and the potential. So Brian, I wanted to follow up on the contributions because one of the pieces that I think is really interesting on this site are the case studies. I wondered if you wanted to say a little bit more or are you interested in the submission of more case studies? Are there particular areas that you'd love to see case studies in? Yeah, I wouldn't want to limit people to say, you know, we only want case studies on this sector of, of this industry or whatever it is, we're really keen to see the full range of what's possible out there with data science. Building out the case study resource is what's going to be the sort of flagship element of the site, if you like, because 
there are a lot of hypothetical examples out in the data science publications of people giving toy examples of you can do this with this and you know here's the package i've built so you can replicate the work yourself what we really want to do is kind of make sure that people understand what data science looks like in context that was what came out of our research that's what people were telling us you know if you're going to build something this is what we want to see we just want to we want to understand how data science is actually used within organizations what the process is that people go through and how the work that's done feeds into organizational decisions product development whatever it might be so whatever sector people are working in if they think there's something they could share and talk about then i encourage them to get in touch the big area of data science that we don't know enough about really is what goes on in industry I imagine it's going to be difficult for, you know, working for a big, I don't know, fast moving consumer goods company, you know, to be able to talk completely openly and honestly about the, the work that you do because of all the sort of confidentiality that there will be around that work. So there will be a certain element of kind of hypothetical examples. But in that sort of context, we're kind of already starved of information about what, you know, data science actually looks like in those contexts. Just knowing that there's a kind of hypothetical example that's grounded in a reality I think will be really helpful, especially to students in terms of helping them to understand how do I apply what I'm learning on my course when I'm out in the real world. It's really valuable, I think, for educators as well to understand what is expected of data scientists in the workplace, because that helps them to craft their courses and to make sure that uh, when people are leaving education, they're leaving with the, the right skill sets and the right approaches. You know, that's the value of case studies. But, we, you know, we don't limit it to that. We, we're open to people writing our articles about big ideas in data science, viewpoint pieces on the whole area of AI and data ethics. We even had a nice tutorial up uh, over the holiday season on how you can use R and ggplot2 to build Christmas cards, which was really fun and show the, the lighter side of, of real world data science. But I think you know, as Nicola Rennie, the author of that, explained, some of these skills, once you learn how to build Christmas cards, it opens up your eyes to thinking, oh, well, you know, I can use what I've learned there to do something with my outputs in the office. You know, generative art, data art can also be really practically helpful uh, when you're back at your desk. So, Brian, as I was listening to you talk about all that, I got to thinking how many words you were using that you couldn't have imagined that you would be saying when you started out in your journalism career yeah well quite a lot because i i mean don't tell anybody this but i kind of got into journalism so i wouldn't have to deal with numbers i always liked maths i, I you know i studied it at college so not you know american college this is in the uk it's the school you go to after you've finished your secondary education but i guess i lacked confidence or i lacked teachers who could instill that kind of confidence to or inspire me to really pursue statistics data maths as a, as a career and one of the things I keep reflecting on now, like having had this opportunity to develop real world data science, to start using some of these tools like Quarto, messing around with bits of R and Python coding, to, you know, try, try out little things. I just feel like I wish I could have my time again. <laughs> I could go back and start down that path. I mean, I know it's not too late. I'm only 41. You know, I could decide to retrain, but at the same time, I really love what I do. Uh, I just wish I could take those the skills I've got for building websites and with things like Quarto and maybe just just push it a little bit further do a bit more of the analysis just have a bit more confidence to know what I'm doing oh Brian I suspect that's in your future <laughs> well it, yeah it might be so my wife is just finishing up a, a degree course a part-time degree course so when she gets her evenings back maybe it's my turn to lock the door uh, of the <laughs> office and just you know, stay up until you know, the early hours, catching up on reading and study and all that sort of stuff. 
for sure. There's uh, a little bit less video game time, maybe, and a little more. Uh... Well, when you put it like that, Don, I don't know if I want to pursue. Uh, yeah, okay, there you go. The hard choices. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Actually, I wanted to bring you back, though, to your journalism beginnings and ask you a, a question about um, public journalism. What are you most excited about? And what are you most worried about? And yeah. especially, you know, in this world of AI and large language models and fake videos and all that. You know, if someone like me who's, you know, a bit further on in their career, is seeing these tools and what's possible and being excited by the potential, I can only imagine what it must be like being a kind of journalism student at the age of 16 or 17 and and seeing the kind of work that is published in the New York Times, in the Financial Times, in The Economist, some of these amazing visual data outputs, some of the analysis that's done as well, the original analysis that these organizations are doing, and just the way they kind of blend journalism, data, art, and weave it all together into like these really kind of interactive, compelling stories. I just think that is what's exciting. It's exciting to think that the journalist's toolkit is now more than just, you know, a notepad, a pen and a dictaphone. It, I would be surprised if most journalists now are not being exposed in some way early on to what you can do with open data and code. And I think that has a lot of potential, a lot of opportunity for good informed work to come out of that. The, the worry, though, is, as you say, AI and, and generative AI. There was a report that came out in the UK, I think it was this week, looking at the potential impact of AI technologies on, on jobs and comms communications was an area that was flagged. So as a young person now, if I would I want to get into journalism if I thought that, you know, in a few years' time, a chat GPT-like model was just going to be doing the work that I would have done? I hope. People aren't dissuaded because I think originality of thought is something that these machines still can't do, can't come up with ideas that haven't already appeared in their, in their training data. I would hope that people do still pursue that path. But I think there is there is the danger. We're both in the UK and in the US coming up to a big election year. I was at an event last week where they were talking about the danger of generative AI in terms of it polluting the discussion, the political discussion, the debate. We've always had problems with misinformation and disinformation. The way that the speakers were describing it was that, you know, generative AI has supercharged the ability to create and disseminate misinformation and disinformation. And that is that's a worry because there are still no good ways of determining whether something is genuine or not. We had that problem as well before ChatGPT, right? We People would still read reports on questionable sites and take it as truth. So it's not that the... AI has created a new problem. It's just made that problem more severe and made it more convincing. It can be hard. And it's, I think it's going to be a worry to see what happens and we'll struggle probably to know whether it impacts the actual outcomes of the election, but just the way it might affect the tone of the debate and the discussion, uh, I think is, is a concern. Thanks for that. And it strikes me as that if listeners are interested in exploring that more, that that might make a really nice contribution for real oh. world data science. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I put a, a short blog post up on the website when I came back from that uh, event. The tech, it was Tech UK's Digital Ethics Summit. But we'd love to explore that theme in more detail. Some of the potential solutions, we, you know, some of these speakers were talking about content watermarking as a way of solving this issue. We've, we've looked before at whether you can kind of use statistical analysis to you know detect the differences between human written text and AI written text you know the field has might have evolved since that post was 
published. So if people have got more up-to-date information on that they'd like to discuss, I think that would be really interesting. But generally, just getting that issue out there, flagging this as a problem is something that I think the platform could do. And if we can motivate other data scientists and other statisticians to be talking about this issue, it makes people aware of the problem and maybe makes them a slightly more critical every time that they read something. Just to stop and ask that question, how do I know that I can trust that? And that's, again, this goes back to what I said earlier about working with statisticians for 10 years. I haven't learned how to do statistics, but I think I've learned when I'm presented with information and data, the, you know, the statistician's first response is always, how do I know that? Where's that data coming from? And I think that's the kind of mindset we all need to be in right now. Absolutely. Asking the good questions. So I'm going to ask a final question to wrap up. This has been a fantastic conversation, but I always like to know what's on our guest TBR, reading, listening to, watching. I don't know very much about video games, but I'll say playing as, playing. as well. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll do all of them then. So uh, playing, I've been going through a game called Cyberpunk 2077, which, uh, you know, with, with this conversation around AI, uh, th- this is the a future in which, you know, AI has basically taken over and we're all part man, part machine. Really a, a great game, but also a really good narrative. Lots of musings, philosophical musings on the nature of humanity. So yes, recommend that. Reading, I'm reading the Oppenheimer uh, biography. I saw the film uh, over the summer and working my way through American Prometheus is the title. And for what I'm watching, of the sad news in mid-December of the death of Andre Brower, the actor who played Captain Holt on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. A few years ago for Christmas, I got bought the entire box set of Homicide Life on the Streets, and I haven't yet watched it. So I think over Christmas, in tribute to Andre, I will be cracking on with that. I'm told it's excellent. That sounds fantastic. A great way to spend a little bit of downtime. Well, Brian, thanks so much for joining us. And um, we definitely look forward to seeing how the partnership on real-world data science grows. And now, by tradition, I will turn it over to my colleague, Ron, for Ron's top 10. Thank you, Donna. We've been at the podcast for a while now, and it is a good time to take stock of how we are doing. Here are the top 10 signs the Practical Significance podcast is successful. Number 10, we have a steady number of sponsors. Zero, but it's steady. Number nine, we are one of the top statistics podcasts in Moldova. Number eight, listenership has tripled since the podcast began. We have nine listeners now. Number seven, Donna never gets any complaints about the podcast content. Number six, our budget still allows for a top 10 list. Plans to reduce it to the top eight were scrapped. Number five, plans to reduce to one podcast host. You can guess which one were also scrapped. Number four, We have a rating of five on Spotify. Just one rater, but that person loves us. Number three, some guests have even been willing to make a second appearance. Number two, our podcast is the favorite on my iPhone. And the number one sign the Practical Significance podcast is a success. Welcome to our fourth year, baby. Thank you for listening to us. We appreciate you joining us for this first episode of 2024, and we look forward to continuing the discussion next time.
Thank you for listening to this edition of Practical Significance, the podcast of the American Statistical Association. A new episode will be coming your way next month from Amstat News, the ASA's monthly membership magazine.